We take on too much debt, it slows economic activity. And the only solution that anyone can come up with is to take on more debt in the hope that somehow that the, the debt will be behave differently this time than it's been, been behaving. And so you get further and further into the debt trap. Hi, I'm Dan Crow, a small business owner living in central Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Lacey Hunt, the famed economist, has returned to do another interview. Many of you will remember that Dr. Hunt came on the show during the middle of coronavirus so we could talk about what happens if the government prints a whole bunch of money and then starts injecting it into our society. At the time, it was April of 2020, we had no idea how big these stimulus packages would get and how many times they would come. But if you go back and listen to that interview, I think you will be like me, which is straight up shocked at how accurate Dr. Hunt was in his predictions. And mostly those come in the form of explaining how economics works. This particular interview is one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had the privilege of having. All of these concepts that I've learned in economics throughout my years of college and graduate work never all came together in one single unitary idea. And for me, this conversation brought together ideas that I had heard but didn't fully understand. I think everyone will be in for a rather wild ride. And if you're like me, by the time you're done, some of your thoughts about where this economy is headed probably will change because of how convincing the explanations Dr. Hunt offers. So we are really honored to have him as a guest. Many people have commented on the last show that we had a living legend on, and we're deeply grateful he was willing to dedicate his time. While you're here, if you're the type of person that enjoys having conversations like this about thinking about things deeply, and you want to find a community of people that are also having conversations about how the economy is going, where should you be placing your attention and your energy, what kind of skills can you be building so that you can have the type of life that you know you could have if you just had a path to get there. That's the Articulate Ventures Network, and we would love to have listeners of the podcast join. We have about seven of us now, ranging from physicists to farmers to young upstart college students and entrepreneurs, people working on things like a writer's workshop or a business dojo where they practice out their ideas and show how their businesses are working, or maybe you just want to come for the conversation in the news feed. If you're interested, know that you are always welcome at network.articulate.ventures. We'd love to have you, and we'd love to have you contribute the conversation that you uniquely can bring and uh, there's a whole bunch of other people that love the podcasts and the guests and the conversation. So there'll be people that you'll probably get along with pretty well. All right, without further ado, let's head to this interview with Dr. Lacey Hunt. Dr. Lacey Hunt, welcome back to the podcast. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Vance. Here we are a year from uh, when we spoke the first time. The last time we spoke, it was uh, the very beginning of coronavirus. Nobody had any idea what was going to happen in the world. But when I went back to listen to our original interview, it is uh, spooky to me how accurate all of your predictions have been so far, to the extent that I'm a little bit like, I hope he doesn't say anything negative is going to happen because that means it will happen. (laughs) 
Well, so to, to start off, uh, tell me, what do you think the state of the U.S. economy is in May of 2021 right now? Well, um, uh, right now we are um, in the vicinity of the peak growth for the year and in the vicinity of the peak inflation for the year. Um, the growth will... Um, um, remain relatively good um, for a while longer, but um, it's, it's already in the process of slowing. And um, by the fall, I think it'll be apparent that um, the, the trend line in, in economic activity that was apparent at the end of 2019, that when we get this rebound, um, by the end of the year, we're going to be well below the trend line. And um, uh, we're, we're clearly in, experiencing inflation presently. And a lot of people are saying, well, we have inflation now, and they're extrapolating that into the future as well. Uh, but I, I think the... Um, as the economy slows and we resolve these supply chain uh, problems, the inflation rate will also come down. Well, um, that that seems to be a real challenge right now because people are watching prices go up and up and up. So it makes them want to jump in. I know I personally am like, hey, I better get these housing projects done right now because it's going to cost me, you know, 25, 30 percent more if I wait. But you think if you wait till fall, those prices will likely fall? Well, I'm not an expert in housing, but um, um, I, I think that if you look at home prices relative to household income, or if you look at home prices relative to rent, which is a substitute for, for buying a new home, uh, the housing market is now more overvalued than it was in the aughts. I mean, this is a very overvalued situation um, it's, it's a result of the fact that the Federal Reserve has been buying $40 billion of uh, mortgages a month. And uh, they, have, they have created a bubble. They've created a bubble. And uh, um, by all characteristics, and for people that want to study that better, what they should do is read the great book, book Manias, Panics, and Crashes by Charles Kendallberger. Tremendous economist, taught at MIT for a long time. He was a, he was a key professor of, um, of Dr. Rogoff at Harvard. And um, that's, that's the situation there. And of course, because of the uh, surge in home prices, there's been a surge in a lot of uh, items that uh, go into building a home, lumber, and so forth, copper, what have you, cement. Um, but um, it's a very dangerous time. Now, that's, that's looking at it on a national basis. There's obviously regional differences. I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't study regional differences, but um, I, think that, um, I think there's already some indication that the housing process is cooling off. Um, I'm, I'm sure that um, your viewers notice that there are much weaker than um, much larger than expected decline in home starts in April. And um, mortgage applications for 
home purchases have come off about 24% from their peak levels uh, in January. And so um, we're, we're, as we always do, when you, when you get uh, an unsustainable rise in prices that outstrips income or outstrips competing services like rent. So housing's in a, and I think in a precarious situation right now. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, all the people that were going to go out and buy a house have gone out and done it. And what, what we were watching houses go up on the market and be gone in two days, you're starting to see that slow a little bit. Maybe they're on two weeks. Maybe they're on three weeks. One of the one of the things that typically happens in a recession is that there's a lot of pent-up demand. People uh, suppress buying for, for big-ticket items like homes. In this particular case, we're supposed to be starting a sustained recovery, and there's no pent-up demand in housing. It's all been effectuated. Uh, now, housing housing is not that important. It's less than 3% of economic activity. Even if you take in the indirect effects, we're, it's just not a major sector, but uh, it, it's, uh, it's out of position with the normal cyclical pattern. Let's put it that way. So let's talk about the things that are much bigger on the economy. I'm watching commodity prices like uh, corn go through the roof. There are a lot of farmers saying the Chinese are buying up everything they can. Uh, you're watching wheat and soy go way up. Uh, I would assume that would be a larger part, a portion of our uh, GDP. Well, I, 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 individual prices are not aggregate prices. And when I try to assess inflation, I use the general equilibrium analysis. And I'm interested in, in what's happening to uh, aggregate demand and aggregate supply. And so um, if you'll remember from your macroeconomics, uh, the aggregate demand curve is downward sloping. And when, um, when there's a major debt financed uh, federal program, uh, such as we've, we've had two this year. We, we had nearly a trillion dollars the start of the year, put through by the outgoing administration, and then we had another 1.9 trillion. Um, so when you have one of these major debt financed activities, the, de the demand curve, which is also GDP, shifts upward. And so it catches, as it shifts off to upward, it catches the aggregate supply curve at a higher price level, also a higher level of GDP. Um, at the same time, um, there were a lot of supply side disruptions from the pandemic. Um, the low cost producers in the world are not in the United States. They're, they're in Asia and other, other foreign countries. And, and so when the pandemic hit, um, the, the low-cost producers in Asia were not capable of sending their products into the United States. And as a result, the high-cost domestic producers were able to gain market share. And, um, but they sold at higher prices, but people were willing to pay because that was all that was available. Um, now, however, um, we, we, we've, we've had a very bad situation on the Western ports. Uh, the container ships were backed up. 
Uh, a lot of goods were stocked on the on the on the docks. Um, the container ships are being unloaded. Uh, the docks are being cleared. They're still not uh, not normal. Um, but but as time goes by, as the as the low cost Asian goods come in, those producers are going to want to regain market share. Now the domestic producers that had a windfall from the pandemic, the, the pandemic did more for the domestic producers than Trump administration tariffs because the pandemic blocked all kinds of goods. The tariffs were just on a limited number of goods. And so, so as time goes by, the low cost Asian producers will come in with their product and they will cut prices to regain market share and the domestic producers will try to hold. And I think we will, we will see the inflation rate come down and uh, moreover, the, this transitory benefit from the upward shift in the demand curve due to all of the nearly, nearly $3 trillion of borrowed funds that have been pumped into the economy, that will begin to fade. Um, when you borrow a lot of money, the demand curve shifts outward, uh, but um, very shortly thereafter, uh, the velocity of money turns down. But, but GDP or aggregate demand is the same thing as money times velocity. And so as that happens, the ag as the supply curve uh, shifts outward, uh, shifts outward, the aggregate demand curve will shift downward. And we will see less pressure on prices, less economic growth, and the situation will resolve it. Let me let me give you a couple of examples. Um, if you go back to 2009 and 2010, uh, we had what was known as the shovel ready projects. Those were debt financed. Um, that gave us one really good quarter, and another quarter was pretty good, not as good as the one the first quarter. Um, uh, the Fed was in, engaged in asset purchases at the time. And a lot of people said that the Fed was printing money. And, and um, there was an upturn in inflation then. Not as, not, as, not as big as the current one, but there was an upturn in inflation. Uh, interest rates rose. Um, there were expectations that the inflation rate was going to move on. Um, but the, the uh, benefit of the shovel-ready debt finance projects was very short-lived. And then I'm going to give you another example. In 2018, uh, we had um, tax cuts debt financed. Well, the second quarter of 2018 was a great quarter. But the third quarter of 2018 wasn't quite as good. Okay. And then the growth rate started decelerating and it decelerated all the way through 2019. In fact, it was decelerating so much that the Federal Reserve was repeatedly cutting interest rates throughout 2019. And uh, so the benefit played off. And um, uh, I think it's important for, for folks to remember that um, Inflation and also long-term interest rates are lagging economic indicators. Um, uh, 
the, the pioneering work on what we call coincident lagging leading indicators was done by Wesley Clare Mitchell and Arthur Burns, who also founded the National Bureau of Economic Research. Arthur Burns later became chairman of the Federal Reserve. And the, in their early work, they classified inflation and long-term interest rates as lagging indicators. Now, and, and there's a very good reason why inflation and interest rates have to lag. So, so you go through a recession, and keep in mind last year's recession was the worst since the end of World War II. It wasn't a normal recession. Um, so um, if, you, if you go through a recession and you start a recovery and inflation immediately begins to rise, well, then what happens? Number one, interest rates rise. There's been some increase in interest rates, and that retards the interest-sensitive sectors. In inflations, wages rise faster than prices. And so real wages begin to fall. And in, a, in an upturn in inflation, people are incentivized to buy cheaper cost imports, and that's a subtraction from economic activity. So there's a very valid reason why a recovery does not coincide with an upturn in inflation. In fact, the average lead time between the start of a recession and the low point inflation is 16 quarters. Whoa. 16 quarters. That's that's four years. That's like uh, if you're trying to fly based on the inflation, you'd be, you'd be four years no. behind. And there are some other factors that are going on. Um, uh, in, in After deep recessions, the rebound in productivity is quite large. Uh, it, productivity always rebounds after a recession. Um, but at, we had deep recessions that ended in 49, 58, and 82. In those three cases, productivity rebounded 5%. And unit labor costs were unchanged. Well, productivity is already rising four. Now, right now, it's not able to compensate for the impact of the transitory boost we're getting from the debt financed activity or the supply chain disruptions. But in time, the productivity will be beneficial. But, but my, my thinking is that, is that, that um, productivity will, will probably do even better this year than 5%. Um, because uh, uh, when, when economies go through crises, such as pandemics, um, what happens is that um, in, innovations in the future are pulled into the present. The old statement that um, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And, and we've changed a lot of things here. This is conference you know you're not having the podcast right now we're talking because of <laughs> yeah. that yeah exactly yeah. so um so i think that we'll we'll have larger gains in productivity and um so what we're experiencing now which is being extrapolated into the future in my opinion is is it, i wouldn't do that i wouldn't go there and uh, i think that uh, the situation will be considerably different now there's um, there is a, another aspect of fiscal policy that people are banking on, um, 
is supposed to be a $2 trillion 10-year infrastructure program. And then there's $2 trillion of corporate and high-income individual tax increases, right? Now, we don't know what's going to happen there. I mean, that's, that's up to the political. And it, it does appear to be a little bit bogged down right now to me, but I mean, it just, politics is fluid. But let, let's talk about that. Um, okay, well, it, it's, a two, it's called a $2 trillion um, infrastructure program. But the way I count the numbers, the infrastructure is only about 300 billion. The rest is, is really social programs and they're phased in and so forth and so on. Now, uh, I've seen a lot of infrastructure programs over the over time and they don't really have any sort of immediate impact on the economy. First of all, you, you got to line up the state and local governments because they have to participate. You got to do your architectural and design work. You got to clear the environmental, and then you got to let the contracts. And so, really, that's a very, very slow process. Uh, but then there's the other aspect of the proposed legislation is there's $2 trillion in corporate tax increases and upper income individuals. I want to tell you um, a lesson from history. Um, I could give you lessons from Japan in the last 30 years, and Europe in the last 25 years, where we've, we've tried similar packages of debt financing combined with tax increases, and they haven't worked well. Uh, but but the, the most uh, cogent example uh, from the U.S. was in the 1930s. Now, I'm not saying that this is the 1930s, a lot of differences, but the policy response in the 30s should be remembered. Um, the Great Depression had two components, one from 1929 to 1933, and then another component from 1935 to 1937. And really, the economy, uh, although we technically came out of the recession in 1937, was remained in pretty bad shape all the way up until the time that um, Germany invaded Poland. And we started selling goods to, we were non-combatant at that time. We got a benefit, you know, from everybody fighting. Um, but but it, uh, in, in the mid-1930s, the uh, Roosevelt administration pushed through a massive corporate tax increase. Well, um, the corporations um, tried to raise prices, but they couldn't. And so what they did is they let go of their employees and they cut back on capital spending. And that hurt the economy, uh, you, you, the, which is illustrative of, you, you, can, you can lay taxes on the corporate sector and ask them to collect them. But, but the incidence of corporate taxes largely falls on the people. On, on households and individuals. Um, so if, if the corporate tax uh, increases go through, uh, firms will raise prices if they can. I suspect they won't be able to. Uh, they will hire fewer people, pay them less, 
or their shift operations overseas. In other words, the corporate tax increase is a contractionary event. And it probably at the exact moment while the when you're looking goes on is actually stunting, beginning to stunt acceptance of future projects. Now let's talk about the tax increases on upper income individuals. Now we all know that a lot of folks did very well in the last several years and income discrepancies have increased. I, I think that's a result of Federal Reserve policy. Uh, whether that's true or not is, is debatable, but that's my view. Um, okay, so we tax the upper income. FDR uh, actually tax the upper income individuals in three successive stages. And um, in, in those cases, the upper income individuals did not really change their standard of living, they reduced their saving. Well, for the aggregate economy, physical investment in plant equipment must equal saving out of income. Well, those upper income individuals do about 90% of our saving. So if you, you hit them, they have less saving, then we get less investment. And what ended up happening is the same thing as the corporate tax hike. The incident falls on the ordinary folks. And so um, the current fiscal programs have been transitorily beneficial, but that benefit is at its peak. It's gonna fade very quickly. And the other packages that are in Congress are actually, in my view, contractionary. You know, you, we talk about the contraction and people not having jobs. I think for a lot of people right now, that is almost inconceivable because every restaurant you go to, every store you go to, there are signs. I mean, I've never seen a sign before on a restaurant that says, now hiring, will hire on the spot, can start working today. And But that's what's going on all around us. What well, do you think's going on with the labor market? Well, that's, that's it's, it's just as I described it. There was a temporary upward shift in the demand curve from the from the 2.9 trillion dollars of debt financed activity and then then the other factor was the deterioration in supply that arose out of the pandemic um, I, let me say that these these supply side disruptions which were currently evident um, uh, do not last very long because of the law of supply the law of supply, which is all, has never been disproved, says that as the price of a good or service goes up, producers will produce more. Uh, the only times that their supply disruptions have, have really lasted for a long time is when a cartel, like the, the oil monopoly, withholds products. Now, oil is an inelastic good. Um, and so there are really not many good substitutes. But... For most things, there are substitutes. For one of the substitutes that you can do is if you see the price shoot up, for example, of building materials or homes or so forth, is you can decide just to wait. See, there's a 16% increase in prices in the last year. Is that a good time to buy? Or do you step back and, and wait to assess the situation? Um, and, and so, uh, I think that that everything that you're saying is absolutely correct. And that's what we have right now. Another thing that has exacerbated the supply, the unintended consequence of the federal legislation, 
is there were very significant um, uh, unemployment supplements paid. And so you could, for a lot of people, they can earn more by collecting unemployment benefits rather than returning to work. Well, you collect the unemployment benefits and earn more, but you don't have to work. <laughs> what are you going to do? You're um, certainly not going to go to work. Yeah. Uh, but that, but that process is changing because 21 of the states now, according to my count, uh, including the big states of Texas and Florida, um, have said that they will no longer pay the supplemental benefits. Um, so the, um, the federal legislation actually incentivized, took people off the market, but in time that will pass. And so uh, the intense price pressures that we're seeing uh, today are a reflection of the transitory fiscal benefit and these supply side disruptions, which I believe will pass. So but what will not pass, what will not pass is the record level of debt that we have, which is a major restraint on economic activity. You brought that up last time where, and you said like, this is what prompts disinflation and, uh, and deflation overall, right? Where all of a sudden you don't want to spend that money because the value has so it's, it's, um, you, you think prices might continue to go down. And I can remember when you were saying that me being like, uh, very suspicious of what you're saying. But now I, I can see very clearly, it's one of the first times you, that economics has moved quickly enough for someone like me to be able to perceive it. Just one year of time, what's happened? And I can see a scenario where all of a sudden supply catches up and people are done spending. They probably overspent if they were spending money. And so now, now you've got a real problem with uh, where, do, where does the price of future goods go? But up until this year, I had almost thought of deflation as a as a magical unicorn thing that doesn't really exist. Well, well said, uh, Vance. Uh, the world is in what I would call a debt trap. Um, we've been experiencing weaker growth. We, from time to time, have problems. In response to the weaker growth or the of the problems, such as a pandemic, the solution is to take on more debt. Um, but the debt makes us weaker and undermines the growth. Well, last year we had a record rise in debt to GDP globally and in the United States and in Europe and in Japan. So we're trying to solve an indebtedness problem by taking on more debt. It's a major structural impediment. And um, when you take on more debt, uh, the amount of GDP created per dollar of debt declines. It, Economists call that the marginal revenue product of debt. And so as, the, as you take on debt, uh, basically to support spending, it doesn't generate an income stream to repay principal and interest. And so consequently, the velocity of money falls. And that's why the demand curve or the GDP curve shifts up in response to the first round of the debt financed activity. But as the velocity of money falls, and so does the marginal revenue product of debt, then your velocity declines. We also have another major structural problem, not only in the United States, but worldwide that is very disinflationary. And that is horrific demographics, very poor demographics. Um, worldwide population growth, 
uh, is the slowest since the 1950s, the United States since 1980. Um, population's not growing in China. Uh, the birth rate is collapsing in Europe. The birth rate's weaker in China than it is in the United States. Oh, and they're trying everything they can. They're throwing the sink at trying to get birth rates to go up, and it's just not happening. This is No, because they pursued the one child per family for too long, and they have a major mismatch between women and men. Um, so uh, in the United States, the average age is 38 years. You're pulling the average down, I'm pulling up. <laughs> um, but in China, the average age is over 40. In Europe, it's over 50. In Japan, it's over 60. Um, in, in China, every 12 months that goes by, the average age goes up six months. So let's talk for the listener just a little bit. Why does it matter? May I, may, may, I, I, you know, let, me, let me make my final point. So the people may say, well, doesn't fewer people and more older people mean that we have a sufficiency of bodies? Isn't this going to be inflationary? Well, if you look at the record in Japan and Europe, places where they have weak demographics, they get lower inflation, lower economic growth. But the problem is that uh, when you have poor demographics, you collapse investment, household investment and business investment. Think of the cost of having babies, raising a family. I'm going through it right now. <laughs> Send them to college. But think, but think of the investment needed by business firms. Think about the investment needed by the community or the government sector, schools and so forth. And um, so the demographics is a major impediment to growth. Some people, some people say that this will be the Roaring Twenties. Well, the Roaring Twenties, we had tremendous demographics to start. At the start of the Roaring Twenties, we were lightly indebted. We were heavily indebted by the end of the Twenties. Um, but we have these two major structural problems, uh, debt overhang and the debt trap. And then we have uh, deteriorating demographics. We're getting older, not enough babies, not enough family formation. And that's suppressing investment. I've heard uh, Tyler Cohen talk with uh, Matt Iglesia about, uh, well, why don't we just, if, we, if the birth rate keeps falling, why don't we just do a massive immigration project in the United States? Let a billion people in. And that might be tongue in cheek. But what do you think about radically increasing the amount of immigration if you can't get birth rates up? Well, the Nobel laureate, Milton Friedman, said, that immigration worked well for the United States when people came to the United States for economic opportunity. And they immediately came and they went into the workforce, they were creative, uh, and they helped expand. If they come in and they're basically young people coming in, um, many call them refugees or what have you, uh, then what happens is that we have to borrow more money to finance them. And so it actually increases the debt load. You just can't, you just can't, you just can't pull the immigration lever by itself. You have to fund it somehow. And we would have to fund it by debt, which would not work, in my opinion. 
You talked about uh, all these countries around the world are uh, using debt in order to be able to make things move forward. I've heard people say, well, as long as the U.S.'s debt to GDP doesn't outpace the other countries, it doesn't really matter how much money we print because as long as they're printing more, we're going to be just fine. How does that argument sit with you? No, that's not right. Um, there are a lot of, of very serious peer-reviewed scholarly research that indicate that our debt levels became excessive in the late 1990s. 1997 was probably the, the inflection point where the debt became deleterious. And we saw after that point in time a major decline in the marginal revenue product of debt. Um, from 1870, to 1997, the real per capita GDP grew about 2.2% per annum. That's your standard of living. Um, since 1997, we've only grown 1.2% per annum. So at the end of last year, the real per capita GDP per person was about, in round numbers, $56,000. If we had been able to grow at 2.3, we would have had 25% uh, more. We would have had 60000 The debt is death by slowest strangulation. That's what it is. It grinds you down. Um, and so the, what, is, what is happening is Europe is more indebted than we are. And Japan is more indebted than Europe. So um, if you look at U.S. growth relative to Japan and relative to Europe, starting in 1995, when the euro was formed, uh, in 1995, we were 4% larger than Europe in real terms. And we were 98% larger than Japan. Now we're 37% larger than Europe and 200% larger than Japan. In other words, it affects us all. And um, this is confirmed by what's happening to the velocity of money. In 1997, $1 of GDP uh, resulted in $2.20. Uh, $1 in money resulted in $2.20 of GDP. And now it's about $1.20. But in Europe, money turns over only uh, 85 cents. In other words, every dollar of new money in Europe only creates 85 cents of GDP. And in, and in Japan, it's, it's less than 50 cents. So you really start running out of steam. The, the more you do, the less it actually propels you forward. Yeah. The, um, the, the people assume that uh, taking on the debt, if that were a real problem, that it would lead to some sort of uh, blow up, a bang point, or some sort of immediate calamity. Uh, but it, it's it's death by slow strangulation. Uh, I, I would quote the poet T.S. Eliot. Did you ever read The Hollow Men? No. In that famous poem, he said, how does the world end? And he says, not with a bang, but with a whimper. In other words, the dead just grinds you down. That's what this... That's what a debt trap is. 
So we, we, we took on a lot of debt last year. You can say it was politically popular, socially necessary. But the fact of the matter is, it's now a problem for us. So what is the way out if it's a slow whimper? Because it's a little bit like the water being turned up on the frog, right? Where eventually you're in boiling water and you, 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 know, you didn't realize it as you were going. It seems like it would take an abnormal or, or unnatural form of government to come in and, and start making these really hard choices. What is the way that, a, that a, is there any economy that's ever gotten out of this debt trap? Well, um, there, there's, there, there was a very fine study by McKinsey Global Institute. In fact, you can go on their website and get the study. Uh, they're the think tank of McKinsey. And the study was published in 2010. And they looked at, at 28 advanced economies that became over indebted in the time period between 1900 and 2008. And McKinsey wrote that in all, and after their extensive study, it's an outstanding study, very well documented, that in all 28 cases, the over-indebtedness had to be cured by a sustained period of austerity, <laughs> which they defined as a significant rise in net national saving. Well, who, who in modern democracy is in favor of austerity? Now, usually what has happened in these 28 cases is they they occurred because of some fortuitous reason. Like, for example, a country that was a major producer of certain goods whose world price rose and they were able to pay off the debt. Um, we, we went into World War II as a very, very heavily indebted economy, massively indebted. Uh, and People think it was the deficit financing of World War II that got us out. And we did have to run deficits that were 13, 14% of GDP. In fact, until 2020, we never had a deficit in, in terms of net national savings that was as large as during World War II until last year. Uh, but but there, was, there was a side event that happened in World War II. We had mandatory rationing. In other words, you, if you wanted 10 pounds of sugar, you couldn't get it. If you wanted four tires, you couldn't get them. You might get one or something. And so the household saving in World War II went up to 25% of net national savings, which covered the federal budget deficit of 14% of GDP. And so we paid off the debt of the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, Britain, at the end of World War II, was very heavily indebted. Um, they had taken on the World War I debt in the heaviest proportion. They had debt from the Roaring Twenties. They had the heaviest proportion of World War II debt. Um, the, the world community, the world financial markets would no longer lend to the British because they thought Britain was a bad credit. Well, it had a bad balance sheet. So what Britain did is they went into 10 years of austerity, not because they wanted to. They constantly changed political parties. No one was happy. They had to continue rationing all the way to 1956. They had to jettison their empire. Now, there were nationalist movements, but they had always been able to overcome the nationalist movements by their military. 
that they could no longer fund the military, so they gave up India and Pakistan. Remember what Winston Churchill said about the British Empire, about in the sun? Oh, that the sun never sets on the British Empire. That's correct. Well, so they, the British, the British were a case of forced austerity. Um, and so, so in the current environment, austerity is not really doable politically. And in a democracy, unless, of course, someone forces it on you. But since we're all over indebted, who is to be the enforcement agent? <laughs> and so what we do is we just keep taking on more and more debt. And what's amazing to me is that people think that if we just take on a large enough amount of more new debt, that we'll somehow kickstart the economy into a higher trajectory. And what we're going to find out is this $2.9 that we borrowed this year was a very fleeting benefit. And so what is the shelter from the storm? I hear people like Peter Zeehan saying, um, hey, the U.S., because we had vaccines out first, we're going to have our economy started first. We're going to get out way ahead of everybody else, and that's going to be great for us. Is that a big enough shelter from the storm? How, how in the world does anybody that says, I see what, what Dr. Hunt is saying, and I want to get out of, of this trouble, or are we just all on this Titanic together? Well, um, we, we did get a head start. We, we were the first out with major vaccination, and that gives us a, a marginal benefit. And, and keep in mind, both Europe and Japan declined economically in the first quarter. I mean, that's already evident. Their numbers were down. We got a gain in the first quarter. Um, the the um, but but that that benefit will pass. Um, and uh, some people say, well, productivity will save us. Uh, that will the productivity will come along. Uh, that's what Bill Gates believes. Um, but I don't I don't think that productivity will save us, and I'll, I'll tell you why. And, and um, the. I'm influenced by the, the work of Dr. Robert Gordon at Northwestern, who wrote a fantastic book called The Rise and Fall of American Economic Growth. And what Dr. Gordon points out is that in the heyday of American economic growth from, 19, from 1870 to 1970, we had what he called five revolutionary inventions. The combustion engine was one of them transmission of electricity, modern sanitation, modern communication, pharmaceuticals and chemicals. Now, think about the combustion engine. Think about how much demand that created for the other factors of production, labor and natural resources. I mean, you, you're going to need to build the assembly line, then you build building highways and bridges, and supply chains. So, so those revolutionary inventions in our heyday of growth enhance the demand for labor and raw materials. Today, what Dr. Gordon is saying is that the innovations are more evolutionary. For example, if you, if you replace a cash register with a scanner, you get rid of some people 
but you don't really require any more in the way of, of resources, of, of land. In other words, the, these evolutionary types of, of technology don't enhance the demand for the other factors of production. And we're seeing this on the assembly line. And we're seeing it a lot of different ways. And so um, technology could, could do that. But I, I, I think that right now we don't have that type of clear technology uh, available to us. That's fascinating. It makes total sense to me. Like everything we see going on right now, if you make a computer faster, right, all that means is maybe you need less people or the amount of time it took you to do something goes down. So if you're paying hourly workers, that's that's going down as well. That's Dr. Gordon's point. Exactly. And and I think like uh, that's something that we haven't really been talking about. It's almost been completely ignored. As you look out on the horizon, you know, I often say the news doesn't tell us what to think. It tells us what to think about and that the best thing you can do is not be guided by what the news tells you to think about, but what do you think is important? What do you think are the the signals in the market that people should be paying more attention to that, that are not often talked about? Well, um, I, I think that, I think that, um, the markets themselves only provide very limited information about what the economy will do in the future. Um, I, I think that there was a time when the stock market was something of a leading economic indicator. Uh, but I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, and I, the reason I say that is that, um, as a result of, of becoming so heavily indebted, uh, we're getting this pronounced decline in the velocity of money. So if the fed increases the money supply 20%, which is what it's done this year, last 12 months, the when the velocity of money falls, the liquidity is trapped in the financial markets. And so this liquidity bids up the price of financial assets, forces down their rate of return. Uh, and, it, and, and the corporate managers are forced to put more of their assets in financial assets rather than real assets. But growth doesn't come from financial assets. Growth comes from physical investment, implication, investment of new technology. Um, in economics, one of the most fundamental relationships, which universally applies, is that investment, physical investment, must equal saving out of income. And saving out of income has three components, private saving, government dis-saving, and then net foreign saving, which is the inverse of the, of the trade deficit. All right, since 1929, the net national saving was 6.5%, uh, which means that real investment was 6.5%. Well, last year, uh, the household saving and private saving went up, but the government dis-deficit went 
down, deteriorated. And so net national saving was was not much above zero. It's historically six and a half percent. And so if you if you look at the historical record, the current level of net national saving is only worse during 08 and 09 and during the 1930s. So when so when you're taking on this debt, you you absorb your net national saving, and there are no funds to go into physical investment, and that undermines your growth. This is another mechanism. There, there's another mechanism that that undermines your growth here. When the government borrows a lot more money uh, to to support you know people in distress because of the pandemic or solve problems. They, they, do, they do so with the best of intentions. But intentions have nothing to do with whether the policy is helpful or not. <laughs> and, and so as the government debt goes up, the government's share of economic activity goes up. But that means the private share goes down. In other words, you, you keep moving um, toward a more governmentally oriented economy. Well, you, your income and wealth doesn't come from the government sector. It comes from the private sector. And um, so what we're basically doing is we're, the folks that um, run the DMV and the post office are getting bigger and bigger, and the private sector is getting smaller. Man, that's a that is a scary, scary thought, right? Because once those bureaucracies grow, it's almost impossible to ever shrink them. So they, that's like permanent. Impossible. That's that's why the BS uh, developed this term debt trap. We take on too much debt; it slows economic activity, and the only solution that anyone can come up with is to take on more debt in the hope that somehow that this, the, the debt will be behave differently this time than it's been been behaving. And so you get further and further into the debt trap. So the question that I see on everybody's minds, particularly over the last year, is the rapid rise of cryptocurrencies, particularly things like Bitcoin. How does this factor into the models? Because it's a it's a seemingly a totally new thing. Is it new to you? I'm not really an expert there, but I'll, I'll just give you. I, I don't know whether where it's going. You know. Um, and I really can't offer any advice, but it, it seems to me is so the, so we've had a 20% increase in the money supply. All right. Uh, the velocity of money is falling. So the money's trapped in the financial markets. So financial asset prices are being bid up, right? It's obvious, it's obvious. And housing, which is really uh, more a component of the financial markets than the real, because it's so heavily financed uh, is also bid up. All right. Well, um, the, the the net result is that uh, as the financial asset prices are bid up and the returns are bid that bid down, people are casting about for something that may have more value but they're motivated by the excess liquidity and the low prospective returns that are available in what we call normal assets. But, but from an economist standpoint, 
And I don't, I don't mean this to be an endorsement or non-endorsement because this is not my field. Um, to, uh, an asset to an economist must have net present value, number one. In other words, you've got to have a stream of future earnings, and we need to dis- discount that future stream to today's dollars, net present value. Well, I don't, I don't see a stream of earnings with with the with the bitcoins okay the other possibility is that you have something that's a permanent store of value now to an economist a permanent store of value would be something like gold silver or platinum um now we know that gold, silver, and platinum don't always retain their value over short periods of time. They're very volatile; they're determined by the marketplace, just as is Bitcoin. But we do know that over the long sweep of history, they maintain their value. So um, the the thing that I would I would recommend to people that are investing, they need to think about it in terms of of this issue of that traditional assets need to have net present value or permanent store value. And that's that's just about as much I can do as I can do for you. I think that's fantastic. I, I've I ask people about Bitcoin all the time, and that's the most uh, novel explanation I've heard, and one that makes sense to me. As you were talking, I was imagining all of the innovation that has happened around the around the Bitcoin space. For example, I know a guy up in Alberta that uh, has started capping uh, gas wells that normally just burn off the natural gas as they're pumping the oil out and turn them into Bitcoin miners. But that's nothing like the automobile, where where the innovations were road and bridges and rubber no. factories and things no. like that. It's nowhere close to what that was. No, no. Well, Dr. Entirely Hunt, this has been a pleasure. I am so glad we can do this. I hope we can do it once a year. I have to say that uh, this was the largest economic lesson that I've ever gotten was listening to you talk <laughs> last year and uh, and really getting like, I, I, I mean, to be totally honest, I thought you were a little crazy the last time we talked. <laughs> And now I'm like, oh man, he's right. <laughs> well, you're so, very kind. I, I had a lot of help along the way. You know, I had some great professors, three different universities. You know, was in the Fed, some big organizations, was exposed to some very bright people, and they gave me a helping hand. I didn't get this by myself. You know, and that actually gives me a, a good way to tie up this thing. You and I were connected with a man named Alan Dorsky, who was uh, an excellent man. He passed away um, not long ago. Um, but how in the world did you ever come in contact with people like Alan, who were out there making exceptional investments, very, very broad-minded thinkers? Alan was one of the finest men I ever knew. And he was he had a tremendous sense of investments in the world. And uh, he was a stock investor. Um, it was my pleasure to manage money for him for a long time. And I got to know him and his wife, Susan. And um, he, he was, um, he, 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 he was able to uh, find use for 
he, he basically specializes in trying to find unique situations in the high technology sector. Uh, but um, uh, he, he found my macroeconomic perspective of some value to him. It's one of the greatest privileges that I had that um, I had that association with Alan. What a fine man. We'll, we will miss him. He was one of the, he was one of a kind. I, uh, I, it was a crazy coincidence that we both knew him, but he spoke very highly of the interview that uh, you and I did together. And my dad, um, who knew Alan, uh, always said he was so generous in sharing what he knew, but he never, he never pushed it on you. He just said, Hey, these are things I'm thinking about. Very non judgmental. Yeah, very. And so I, I thought it would be Extremely worth Extremely well read. Yeah. One of the most well, well, well read, well read men that I've known in my lifetime. Well, with this, Dr. Hunt, I am grateful that you came on, and uh, maybe we'll get to talk again next year. I, I know your time is very valuable, so thank you for coming on. My pleasure. All the best to you.